Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Peter Scholl. For the last nine years or so, I've lived in Mexico with my family, as, as Pastor Marty said. And uh, one of the privileges I have in my job is to be meeting all sorts of people in all sorts of churches around the Spanish-speaking world. Um, it's, a, it's a great joy. I, I get to share God's Word in all sorts of different contexts. And uh, thank you for the invitation to be here this morning. One of the one of the habits uh, of many Latin American churches is that we pray, which is good, uh, but often when we pray, we will start the prayer with a verse, uh, which, I, which I really like. And so I'm going to do that this morning. We're going to pray as we come to God's word, but we're going to do it Latin American style. It's okay. We're going to do it in English, um, but I'm going to begin with a verse. And the verse I'm going to read is the very first verse of the book of Psalms. So Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 says... Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Lord, this morning we ask that you would allow us to meditate on your word, to delight in your word. Please take away those things that distract us. Allow us to hear you speak, that we may bear fruit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been wondering for the last little while, what does it take to make a name for yourself? You know, there are just some names that everybody knows. How do you get to be one of those people? How is it that you, when you call a restaurant to make a reservation or you call an office to make an appointment or something that the receptionist says, May I know who's calling? And you say your name and there's a pause. And they say, oh yes, Mr. Scholl, no problem. Now sometimes the pause is because they're thinking, are you the Mr. Scholl? And suddenly they're on Facebook. I'm on the phone with Mr. Scholl. Excited emoji. Or maybe they're they're on the phone thinking, are you that Mr. Scholl, and they're considering kind of yelling abuse, hanging up, or, or both. Because having a name can go both ways, can't it? You can have a really bad name, the guy that everybody knows for the, for the wrong reasons. Hello, it's, um, it's Adolf Hitler here. So if one possibility is if you want to make a name for yourself, you do something really, really bad. But I don't want to be that person. So another option is to do something really, really good. What are the names on that list? Hello, it's Mother Teresa here. It's Bill Gates here. But then there are the people who just have a name because they have a name. I have no idea why. They haven't done anything good. They haven't done anything bad. They are not known. They are known because they are known, right? Who are you thinking of? Kardashian, yeah? I don't know whether it's through Twitter, publicity, skill, manipulation, whatever it is, they have a name for themselves. People identify with them. They want to be part of their brand. Um, And, you know, as Christians, often... We are not immune from this kind of wanting a name or wanting to identify ourselves with a name. I hear people say here and in Latin America where I move, 
I'm a Keller guy. I'm a Carson person. I'm a Piper guy. Whatever, whoever it is. Now, I think it's very safe to say these, these leaders, they're not setting out to make a name for themselves, but that's what's happened. And just maybe inside us somewhere, there is a desire that says, oh, I'd like it if people knew my name. I'd like it if in my, my sphere of business, my name was known. I'd like it in the, the social world that I move or the sporting fields I walk on, people would look at, him, look at me and say, look, it's him, or look, it's her. Now, perhaps you're thinking, nah, that, 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 not me. But can I ask you, do you use social media? Do you post on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever? Why? Is there a possibility that you'd really like it if people knew your name? Now, the reason I'm thinking about this is this concept of making a name for yourself is a key idea in our two passages today. And we're going to see this idea from two very different angles. Uh, and I hope as we do that, we can think about this desire that we might have to make a name for ourselves. We're going to begin in chapter 11 of Genesis, and then we're going to move into chapter 12 of Genesis, and we'll finish in Philippians chapter 2. So please have your Bibles open and, uh, and follow along with me as, as we work through that path. Genesis 11 is a really famous passage. Uh, it comes at the end of a very significant section of, of Genesis, which has become, uh, begun back in chapter 3. It's the entry of sin into the world. Now, this entry of sin, of course, is a massive contrast to the first two chapters of Genesis, uh, where we've seen the perfection and the harmony of God's creation. We, we keep on seeing this phrase in Genesis 1, and it was good, and it was good. And that is saying creation is just as God wanted it. And humankind is part of that creation, and they're in the garden experiencing fully the blessings of God. But in chapter 3 of Genesis, humanity has rejected that authority of God. Humanity has decided to be autonomous, self-ruling, uh, living under their own authority rather than their creators. Uh, that, of course, is what the Bible calls sin. And in chapter 3, we see that sin has consequences. Most clearly, the expulsion of humanity from the place where they can enjoy God's good blessings. Now, from chapter 4 onwards, we see that the propagation, the spread of sin uh, through the narrative of Cain and Abel, the, the flood, and finally, here in chapter 11, through the clans of Noah in this place called the plains of Shinar. Now, why is this context impo important? Why haven't we just go, okay, chapter 11, let's go. Because if we lift chapter 11 out of the context of Genesis, out of the flow of Genesis, we don't appreciate the profound offense of what is happening here. And the profound nature of how that offense is the, the climax of what has come before. And if we don't understand the depth of the offense, we don't understand the, the solution, the depth of the solution. So let's look at Genesis 11. Now remember, these are God's people, part of his creation, people who have been created in his image, created to multiply and subdue the earth. They are the people who are descended from Noah, 
the righteous man saved by God when everything else was continually wicked all the time? These are the people of the covenant, the promise that God will never again destroy the earth. And what is their response to this status? Chapter 11, verse 3. Come, they say, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They have brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. See, the people are worried. They're in a new place and they're worried. Their worry is that they are going to be dispersed. And the problem with being dispersed is that you lose your identity. No longer will people look at them and say, look, it's the clans of Noah. No, no, they'll just say, look, it's some people. It's the worry of a distinct group of immigrants coming to a new country. That they come and live in this place and their identity, that their name will be lost. They, they will be diluted amongst the people who are there. In fact, in the history of the Bible, we see this dilution, this dispersion being used as a weapon, as a, as a method of destroying a culture. In the 8th century BC, when Assyria captures the northern tribes of Israel, the way in which those 10 northern tribes of Israel are destroyed is that the Assyrians deliberately disperse them amongst the people in Assyria. They lose their identity. They, they cease to exist. So in Monterey, where I live in Mexico, there is a huge factory for, for Kia, the Korean car company. Absolutely massive. It employs 20,000, 25,000 people. Um, there are lots of Koreans moving to Monterey, which is great because I really like Korean food. But they are, they are facing this question of being dispersed. If they come and live in Mexico, are they going to lose their Koreanness? Are they going to lose their Korean name by moving to Mexico? And if so, what are they going to do about it? Well, their response is to build Korean churches, um, Korean restaurants. There are Korean social clubs, social gatherings. Now, I get that. As someone who has lived in a culture, especially when you first get there and you don't speak the language and you don't understand what's going on, it's sometimes just really nice to talk to someone who is from the old country, right? But it's this investment in social infrastructure that they do to prevent the inevitable dispersion. Because their kids will go to Mexican schools and they will speak Spanish, not Korean. They will hang out with Mexican teenagers and they will eat tacos, not kimchi. They will listen to reggaeton, not K-pop. They will lose their Korean identity. My kids do not know whether they are Australian or Mexican or what. The clans of the sons of Noah have this worry. So what is their solution? They're going to build a massive city and a tower to make a name for themselves. In their mind, they're thinking, we'll create a name, a brand for ourselves We'll be the people of the city. We'll be the people of the tower. People will know us. They'll go, oh, you're the guys who built the tower. They will know us for our ability, for our technology. 
and we'll be proud of that. Our skill, our name, our reputation will be our preservation. That will stop us from being dispersed. Now, some of you might have heard or even been to a place called Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. It's in the Persian Gulf. If you go to Dubai, there is a tower in Dubai called the Burj Khalifa. Uh, You can't miss it. It is the world's tallest tower, 160 stories high. That is 50% higher than what the Twin Towers were. You, You can't be in Dubai and not see it. It is described as, quote, a symbolic beacon of progress, an emblem of the new, dynamic and prosperous Middle East. Listen to what uh, Mr. Alabar, chairman of the Burj Khalifa, says. He says, this is a quote, Burj Khalifa goes beyond its imposing physical specifications. In Burj Khalifa, we see the triumph of Dubai's vision of attaining the seemingly impossible and setting new benchmarks. It is the source of inspiration for every one of us. The project is a declaration of the Emirates' capability and of the resolve of its leaders and people to work hand in hand on a truly awe-inspiring project. That has got, we want to make a name for ourselves, written all over it, doesn't it? That is exactly what the Tower of Babel builders are wanting, that kind of declaration. So what is God's response? Have a look at verse 6. Behold, God says, they are one people, they all have one language, This is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. God sees this desire to make a name for themselves as a further move to independence, uh, autonomy. It is a continuation of the path that has begun in chapter 3 and has continued as sin has spread throughout the world. It is mankind, humankind, convincing himself that he can do whatever he likes create in his own image without any reference to his creator. Which, of course, is a problem because mankind has an image. He has been created in the image of God, Genesis 1.26. For humanity to create a name for itself is to reject the name of God, the image, the name that he's already been given. And so... Seeing their intention, God acts. He confuses their language. The consequence of this is English and Spanish and French and Russian and all the languages so they no longer can work together. And look at verse 8. What is the result of this confusion? They are dispersed. The very thing that they were fearful of in the early verses of chapter 11 is the consequence. But there is a surprise in this chapter. Because from verses, uh, chapters 4 to 11 of Genesis, a simple sort of three-step pattern has emerged. The steps are sin, judgment, mercy. Three times we've seen a repetition of this pattern, sin, judgment, mercy. For example, in the flood, what is the sin? The rejection of God's rule by all, all the world. What is the judgment? The flood. What is the mercy? the preservation of Noah and his family. But if we're reading through Genesis and we come to chapter 11, we're going sin, judgment, mercy, sin, judgment, mercy. Chapter 11 is a surprise because the pattern doesn't fit. There is sin, absolutely. There is judgment, 
very clear. But where's the mercy? There's kind of a, oh, wait a minute, where is the mercy? And fortunately, we don't have to wait very long because in chapter 12 comes the mercy. In chapter 12, God reveals his plan to reverse the dispersion of Babel, but also to redeem the entire fallen creation. So please turn the page or look to the end of the page. And we're going to read from Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, all, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here is the mercy. It's the missing step. In response to the dispersion of chapter 11, here we see the promise of the blessing of unification. I will make a great nation, singular. And in you, in that nation, all the families of the earth, from all the corners of the earth, from the dispersed corners of the earth, shall be blessed. Unification. But perhaps most Importantly, in the context of Genesis 11, he says, I will bless you and make your name great. One of the key aspects of this kind of multifaceted promise of redemption is a great name. That, that is what the people of Babel wanted. But that is what the blessed descendants of Abraham will have. But notice, it won't be something that they have earned for themselves. It won't be something that they've created through their own skill or reputation or action or clever publicity. No, no, it will be given to them by God as a result of his promise. The great name will be the result of God's initiative. It, it is God's gift, God's, God's promise, not earned, but promised and given. And, and they won't just have this name to be famous, to, to have a name. No, no, look at what it says. It says, I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. The, the purpose is not self-serving, but other-serving. Serving. What, a, what a difference that is to the great names of our world, the, the tweeters, the Instagrammers. They want a great name so that they can have a great name. Their purpose is to build their empire, to sell more stuff, to create more of a following, to get more friends, whatever it is. But God's promise to Abraham is a great name so that he will be a blessing. The verse tells us that the blessing will also be to all the families of the earth. So what happens to this promise? Well, throughout the Bible, this, this theme of name, making a great name, has, has many movements but we're going to go forward 18 centuries to the Apostle Paul because in one of his wonderful passages of praise and exhortation, our great name is a key theme. So please turn over to Philippians 2, our, our second reading, and we're going to read again from verse 5. But, but as we do that, <clears throat> I want you to look out for two things. First, compare what this passage is, um, says about Jesus 
to the people of Babel. Okay, so how is Jesus different to the people of Babel? And second, keep an eye out for this theme of name. How is Jesus different to Babel? And just keep an eye out for name. So I'm going to read from verse 5, Philippians chapter 2. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what did you see? How does Jesus compare to the people at the Tower of Babel? Remember, they're, they're the people who wanted to make a name for themselves, protect themselves from dispersion. The con contrast is massive, isn't it? Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, which is exactly what the people of Babel were wanting to do. They wanted to be equal with God. Jesus humbled himself. Babel people, no humility. They want to be known for their greatness. Jesus, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Babel people wanted to protect themselves from dispersion, an attitude of disobedient preservation. And, and add to this the opening phrase that Jesus, who, uh, though he was in the form of God, I mean, if he wanted to claim his right as having equality with God, he could, because he has that equality. But in his obedience, he decides to waive that right. In his equality with God, he could have said, I don't need to stoop to the level of humanity in their sin and their failure. And yet he humbled himself in human form. In his equality, Jesus could have said, I am above death. I am better than death. And yet he was obedient to death. Even death on a cross, the most humiliating, cursed method of death. But what about the idea of name? Where do we see name? Look at verses 6, 7 and 8 again. Because in this magnificent, magnificent hymn of praise and recognition of Jesus, these verses paint an astounding picture of Jesus. But look what happens in verse 9. A name is bestowed on him. The name that is above all names. The name to which all other names bow and confess. And that name is Jesus is Lord. And, and this name, that great name, the greatest of names, it's not demanded, it's not created, it's not carefully shaped, it's not the result of a campaign. It is given by God. It is bestowed by God. It is given to him who is perfect in his humility and obedience. And to that perfectly humble and obedient servant, Every knee bows. Now, if we are reading Philippians 2 in the context of the whole Bible, the connection with Genesis 11 and 12 is very clear. Jesus is the perfect contrast to the people at Babel. And 
he is the perfect fulfillment of the promises to Abraham in Genesis 12. Abraham was promised a great name, a name that would be blessing to others. Jesus is that name. He is the one through whom we receive the blessing of God. And we do that as we bow our knee to him as Lord. So I began today by, by thinking about the question, how can I make a name for myself? But as, as God has poked and prodded me as I've thought about these passages, I've realised that that is just the wrong question to ask, right? That is the question the world wants us to ask. And that is the question that the world thinks it can answer. See, the world wants us to say, because in, in our world... Here today, gone tomorrow, there is nothing more. We might as well try and make today ourselves as important as possible and maybe just extend that importance for a little bit longer. Kind of like you know, the high school football star who never really made it, never really went anywhere, but just wants to hang around and sort of extend his name's greatness for a few more years. If we are constantly trying to build our brand, build our name, we are just playing the world's game. You build up your brand and you'll have your five minutes of fame. Our TV shows are full of that. But your flower will fade. You'll be the next, oh yeah, I kind of heard of that guy once, but I wonder where he is now. But if we are looking at our life, our existence through God's eyes, then there is so much more than here today, gone tomorrow. Because his son, Jesus Christ, is at the centre of our life. He is the centre of our life. He is the fulfilment of God's plan. He is the reality of the promise. He is our name. He is our hope, our saviour, our life. And therefore the question is not, how do I make a name for myself, but... How do I respond to the one who has the great name? If we serve the one whose name is above all names, if we submit to him as Lord, to the glory of God the Father, the one who gave him that name, what a glorious eternal life that is. And so I want to encourage you, look to the one who has the great name. Live for the one who has the great name. Bow to the one gladly. Bend your knee joyfully. Confess his name confidently to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, Jesus is the one who has the great name. Thank you for giving him that great name. And Father, please allow us to serve him, to bend our knee joyfully, to confess his name confidently and to be his people in a way which brings glory to you and encourages our neighbours, our friends, our other countries to also bend their knee to his name. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen.